Hello, I'm Derek Doak, and you're listening to the Real Estate Investment Insights Podcast. For over 25 years, I've been serving the investment property industry, from preparing tax returns for property owners when I worked in public accounting, to creating multi-million dollar syndications as a commercial broker. Throughout my career, I've always had a passion for learning and teaching what I've learned to others. This podcast is for fellow brokers, agents, investors, and real estate syndicators wanting to learn from those that have done it. My goal is to bring value to you through the sharing of best practices and industry knowledge. Each episode is geared towards providing knowledge and insights on industry topics and trends. Please enjoy this episode, and if I can be of any assistance, please reach out to me at Derek at DokeMail.com. Now enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Investments Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Doak. And with me today is first time on the show, but longtime compadre of mine as it relates to understanding real estate, Rob Sargent. And Rob is not only a great person, he's probably one of the, if not the premier attorney in the Northwest when it comes to real estate and financing. Um, I've known Rob through the CCIM chapter. Um, Rob's always been a huge supporter of the chapter and very gracious with his time. Uh, Helps out a lot of people, um, just very knowledgeable. So I think this is going to be a great show, especially as we look at the market today and where we're headed. So Rob, I know you've been an attorney for 40 plus years in the real estate realm. I know if I believe you're also the current president of the American College of of, of uh, mortgage attorneys, and uh, and from there, I know that you you know practice in Washington or all over the country actually, and have been engaged with an awful lot of high profile uh, financing legal situations around the country, and have been through at least three to four downturns, and have a lot of insights to share. So. Before we jump into the first question, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, a little bit about your practice? Thank you, Derek. Uh, hello to you. Hello to your listeners. Um, thank you for inviting me to join you on your program. It's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. I always learn something new and have a lot of fun doing it. So. Um, thank you to, uh, for asking me to join you. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I, I have been an attorney um, for over 40 years, and most uh, of that has in some way or other been in real estate. Um, I started as a younger lawyer doing what we call trial work, litigation, courtroom work. Um, over the years that branched out and I learned transaction work beginning with residential and then um, after that commercial. And I even uh, did hard time, as they say, with a title insurance company. I was a an underwriting attorney and I ran a production office and closed transactions all over the country, what we call national title services. So I I have experience in markets beyond the Pacific Northwest. As a lawyer, I'm admitted to practice in three states, uh, Washington, Oregon, and Alaska. 
and in my transaction work, not practicing law, but working for the title underwriter, I've worked um, in probably all 50 states, dabbled a little bit in Canada and Mexico, and um, have closed uh, transactions and written policies in uh, all of the United States, save one, and that's Iowa. Did you know that in the state of Iowa, the business of title insurance is a class C felony? You cannot engage in the title insurance business in Iowa. There are other ways to get title insurance coverage in Iowa. But I used to work for a boss down in Houston who would tell people that his mother didn't have a clue what her son did, but she knew that if he did it in Iowa, he'd get arrested. So <laughs> stay out of stay out of Iowa. Stay out of and Iowa until one. until this past month, I was fortunate and honored to be able to serve as the president of the American College of Mortgage Attorneys. I've I've been a fellow in the college for many years. Um, a fellow in the college means that you have been designated by other lawyers around the country who handle mortgage finance and real estate related transactions as someone who is capable. And then over the years, um, depending on what you do and what you know, uh, you can be asked to help serve in um, officer roles in the company. And that's what I did. And I had a wonderful time and got to know some of the most able and interesting people around the country. And the benefit of that is that I talk to people regularly all around the country about what's going on, their markets, their clients. And when possible, I serve as a local counsel for them when their New York lender or their Miami lender or their LA lender needs a local attorney in the state of Washington. Yeah. So I, I, I get out there and I talk to a lot of people and at annual meetings or day to day, I have an opportunity to, you know, put my ear to the rail and listen to what's going on. Which is, and, uh, which is um, what you and I talked about uh, about a week ago when you and I were catching up and I was talking about, we were both talking about the market and kind of our perspective and, of course, I see it from a broker's perspective and a property owner's perspective of asset management and property management. And then you had some great insights as you were talking about this kind of your workload of saying, hey, Derek, I look at the market based on my workload. That gives me an inside perspective of what I'm seeing and what could trickle into down the road what we're dealing with on the broker side or property owner side. And I found that really enlightening because, you know, you and myself have been through a few of these downturns. Um, whether you're calling this an official downturn yet or not, I would say with uh, you know investment sales down where it is, interest rates where they are, there's just a lot of things going on. But then we have some of the things that happened in 08 that then had some regulations that changed after that that could affect this one in a different way, whether it's mark-to-market and some of these other ideas that we talked about. So what I wanted to kind of get your perspective on to start with is kind of Given where we are today, and looks like we're heading into or we are already in what could be perceived as a downturn, how does this look compared to others that you've been a part of? I um, think you're referring to what I euphemistically enjoy referring to as my barometer. 
when I started practicing law in the um, early 80s, we were, as those of us who've been around for a while will recall vividly, in a full-blown recession. Interest rates were double digits and higher. Um, the market was experiencing all sorts of turbulence. And when I say the market, I mean both the residential markets and the commercial markets. And it was a difficult time. Um, political administrations were thrown out in worse. And then things got better. As cycles changed, they changed until we had another, um, shall we say, bumpy period in the early 90s. And um, things changed. And we recovered, and then we went into the early uh, 00s when you may remember we had the dot-com bomb. And then we had the um, the one highest on the Richter scale, 07, 08, 09, the financial crisis, which took years for us to recover. And I was making the observation that during those periods, I've learned a couple of things, and it helps me to um, to give people a, a barometer of where I think, what I think the weather is likely to be in the short run. In um, one recession, um, things froze, in others, they slowed. But throughout this period, one of the things I've noticed, it is anecdotal evidence, but it's some evidence nonetheless. I've noticed that, um, in my practice, it's all real estate. Everything I do is real estate one way or another, mostly commercial, occasionally residential, but it's all real estate of some sort or other. And um, I handle litigation and I handle transactions. When the market and the economy is going strong, I do predominantly, if not entirely, transaction work. I represent uh, buyers, sellers, lenders in closing deals. And that includes the due diligence, the post-closing. Think of what it takes to get a deal up and off the ground. And sometimes I'll be the lender's lawyer. Sometimes I'll be the developer's lawyer. Sometimes I'll be the seller's lawyer. But it's all transaction-related work. On the other hand, I have a lot of experience um, going to court, doing trial work. And uh, it, in fact, one of the ways that I got to know the title insurance business was as a claims lawyer, the lawyer who's hired by the title insurance company to represent a lender or a buyer who has a title insurance policy, makes a claim, have a problem, and my job is to fix it one way or another. And what I've learned is that there are certain patterns when the economy is doing well and looking good in the future, Rob's doing a lot of deal work. When the economy may be a little shaky, Rob's doing a lot of litigation work. And as you and I were visiting the other day, you asked me, okay, Rob, I'll bite. What are you doing these days? And my answer, if I recall, was I'm doing more trial work. More and more, I'm getting involved with clients who have a problem. There's a dispute. Think of it as musical chairs and the music stops and now everybody's trying to find a chair. And you want a lawyer who may be able to handle a workout, may be able to um, deal with a foreclosure, may be able to represent in a receivership 
or more often than not, it's some sort of negotiation that'll come close one way or another, or may involve court work, trial work. And um, in the last six to 12 months, my clients have been asking me to do more litigation work than transaction work. I'm still seeing some transaction work, but more litigation work. And I don't think that my practice is sui generis. I think the other lawyers are seeing the same thing. And I gave you an example that I'll share with your listeners, because if it doesn't concern you, this example should concern you and you might want to think about it. Many of the loan documents for loans that have been placed in the last two to 10 years include non-financial performance covenants. In English, what we mean is certain things that a borrower must do, and this would include an LLC, special purpose entity, or SPE. There are certain things that a borrower must do. There are certain things that a, a borrower shall refrain from doing. Classic examples of the refrain from something or what we call the bad boy acts. You can't pollute the property. You can't uh, manage the property in a way that may be contrary to uh, normal commercial practices in say leasing. You can't violate the law. The other restrictions are what we call non-financial restrictions, which usually have to do with equity participation in a transaction. So if a borrower closes a loan, and say the lender gives them what I think most people would consider to be a fairly aggressive loan to value ratio, the covenant will say that the borrower must maintain 70, 80, sometimes as low as 50, but usually it's a higher percentage rate when this comes up, equity in the trend in the property. And of course, the lender knows well what that is because lenders have regula regulators and the regulators will require what are called mark to market analyses. The mark to market means that the lender has to know what the market is and has to keep that asset valued on its books at or very close to those numbers. So many of the lenders on the bigger loans are regularly having uh, fair market valuations by licensed appraisers. And those appraisers are constantly telling the lender, your property is X or Y, and they put that in the file. And then they look at those covenants, they have a checklist, and um, they, they will know whether those equity participation covenants are being met. So if there's a 70-30 and the value of the property, the market value, mark to market goes down, that means that the ratio shifts. And if the property is worth, we'll take as an example, $100, and there's a 70-30 equity participation covenant, and the, the value of the property goes down to $90, that extra 10% has to come from somewhere. And what it usually means is that the borrower has to pay in capital to meet that um, equity participation requirement. So I'll get calls from lenders attorneys in the major uh, metropolitan areas, and they'll be asking me, what do we do? We're the lender. We've got a clear violation we've got of, of non-financial covenants. And yet we've got a borrower that's performing on the loan. They're making the payments. They're paying the taxes. Um, the lease pro forma may not be what we want it to be, but it's working. 
what do we do? How do we deal with that situation? Every situation is different. Every situation has a different solution. And it usually starts with the borrower and the lender having a conversation. It's never an easy conversation. But a lot of lenders are looking around and they're saying, well, you know, if we don't do something, our regulator is not going to be happy with us. On the other hand, we want to be customer friendly to our borrowers, especially where our borrowers are not in default. Now, don't get me wrong. There are situations um, where borrowers are in financial default, and that's a different situation. But more and more, the the lenders begin with the um, preposition that maybe that's redundant, but they, they don't want to own a building. They want the borrower to own the building and they want to help the borrower work it out. How do we do that? How do we change the documents? That kind of work is happening more along with the litigation as opposed to um, yeah. the work that, um, will you excuse me for a minute? I'm still with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, it's interesting because if you bring that up, my mind goes into two questions. You know, one is- I was going to tell you, I don't and left the door open. So. Okay. I was going to say, how often do they have to appraise those assets is one and the other is what is, is there a hammer on the leg on the regulator side on the institution so in other words is there is would they i'm trying to think you know i'm back to this idea of forced sales what's going to cause that individual to have to sell that asset is if the bank comes in and says you need to put in 10 percent more in your example and which is happening that's happening okay and, and, and so is, is there a penalty from the regulator to the financial institution who made that loan if they don't get it within compliance? Short answer is yes. Um, okay. Regulators, because of the oversight of the CFTC um, and um, the primarily the FDIC, um, but there are other, like the feds, there are other institutions involved. And the short answer is that every lender of any size, and we're not talking about private money, we're only talking about institutional money, is required to maintain that asset, meaning the loan, on its books at market value. And in some cases, it'll mean an appraisal every year. In some cases, it'll mean every other year. It depends on the institution and the regulator and the property. But the idea generally is that the lender has to keep that asset on their books um, at market. And if market goes up, great. All, uh, all boats are floated by a rising tide. Yeah. And if it goes down, then they got to show it. And, and the reason for that is because in 07, 08, we saw a calamity that came out of lenders not having to keep real values on their books and that was part of the reg, uh, legislators in the regulatory environment saying, we want the information about a financial institution to be based on timely and accurate information. That's what they're trying to do. Which, and, and it makes sense. I mean, it's, uh, and again, part of the conversation, the reason why I like this topic when you and I talked about it the other day was these are things that go on behind the scenes that aren't hitting the paper, that aren't really being talked about of why uh, property we put on the market for sale. It's not like 07, 08, where we had a financial meltdown. We're in a position where now it's going to be potentially some regulations that would cause a sell, to your point, a good borrower who's making mm -hmm. 
the payments based on what they had, no adjustment in the rate as it relates to interest rate and so forth. But now we've got this mark to market where the asset on paper has lost value. And and the the result, the consequence is that the investor or investors have to write checks. Right. And you know, when um when individual investors get together and they partner, or you get more sophisticated equity plans, or even uh, mezzanine financing, where you get a whole different tranche of lending that comes based on the personal property interest in the entity, all of that um, can be affected by lowering values. And by and large, I don't think owners, investors want to sell their properties, but it's a it's a possibility. It can be a consequence. And I I don't think at this point that's driving the market. But what I can tell you is that when money gets short and a lender puts a little pressure on a borrower, all the options are on the table. And it's it's not a coincidence when you see parties litigating uh, either in state court sometimes in federal court, but if it's federal court, it's usually bankruptcy court. But there's some form of litigation used to stop a, a dire consequence or to resolve a dispute between parties. When the market's humming along, people don't litigate. People, right. they they put together deals, they buy, sell properties, they, they do things that increase value and create more synergisms. Um, when there aren't many options, sometimes the only viable option can be to litigate. So when somebody like me, who's involved in nothing but real estate and I handle both sides, it's not a coincidence when I start seeing more litigation and less transaction work. Now right. I'm still seeing transaction work yeah. and it's, it's still good work, but with interest rates being what they are, it's, less about loans and other options and the properties are a little more off the beaten path. Yeah. You know, just, it's one observation, one data point yeah. along the way. Oh yeah. No. And, and that's the thing. It, it kind of builds up. I mean, everybody, I, I remember uh, 2011, 12 and 13 after everything happened and we were out buying real estate, we were still getting investors that were interested, but the capital just wasn't there yet. It didn't really start coming on until about then 12, 13, 14. And then all of a sudden it started ramping up. And then, you know, 16 through 20, there's a lot of activity. Sure. Um, and so, so when I, yeah, during those years, during those years, I was doing nothing but transaction work and it wasn't yeah. a lot of litigation. It's yeah. no coincidence that my clients need me to perform litigation services. That's telling us something. Yeah. It, and, and I'm a, uh, I'm always interested to kind of see again all the the levers that get pulled in a situation on a piece of property, right? You have investor lever, you have interest rate lever, you have lenders, you have tenants, um, you have municipalities, regulations that come into play. Um, there's just a lot of things that come into play that affect the value of a piece of real estate or whether or not you sell it or you're going to buy it. And in these times, when you're hearing all the conversations around markets, um, you know, certain cities that have been pummeled by uh, valuations. Um, you've got others with the uh, office 
uh, a lot of office coming online. Um, I'd be curious at your meeting that you had was what was there an asset class that the receivers or the attorneys that work with a lot of receivers were talking about? Were there was there anything that was kind of hey, here's a story about what's going on within the receivers, you know, that type of. One of my um, one of my very good friends um, from my days in the title insurance business is a PhD economist named Ted Jones. Uh, Ted Jones get, gets up here once in a while. He's he's based in Houston and he knows the markets all over the country. And if you call Ted on any one particular day, He'll tell you X or Y based on what the data are showing. And uh, I, I know a few other economists that um, I really enjoy chatting with. But well, one of the things Ted is is fond of reminding me is that anybody who tells you they know what the future is going to be either doesn't know or doesn't know how to know. We don't know what's going to happen. Right. But we can look at recent past performance and we can extrapolate certain things. So, you know, do I know what's gonna happen in the future? Heck no, but I can see that certain patterns during the next year, two years, maybe a little further, tend to compare with what we've seen in the past. So I would never be a prognosticator at an economist like my friend, Dr. Ted, will tell you, yeah, we can do anything and then just change it tomorrow. The funny thing about his predictions are they're usually right. And he likes to tell us about the relationships between interest rates and the price of oil. Once I started listening to that, a lot made sense. Um, I think the obvious um, may be worth mentioning, that is, certain parts of the commercial real estate markets are having a little more turbulence than others. I don't think it's a secret that the office markets across the country are having a little more difficulty. Um, real estate, or, uh, uh, retail real estate and retail businesses have had some serious challenges um, and I was in the Midwest not too long ago, and I would go by once thriving shopping centers, and they're nothing but giant parking lots and difficult places to be. Um, industrial seems to have a different life. And those are the transactions more often than not that I'm seeing. Um, distribution centers and um, some of the developer uh, owners, people like Dave Sabe and Larry Benaroya, are expert at finding the properties, knowing exactly what their markets need and developing those properties for data centers and uh, distribution centers. And of course, the big news in the south end of Seattle and some of the south counties was distribution centers for major players like Prologis, but also some of the smaller players. And that's what people need. Well, we're apartment buildings. Um, you know, my friend Candace Chevalier will tell you that uh, multifamily residential is hitting it out of the park. They love to say that. Is it really? I don't know. I mean, it depends on whether you're in the suburbs or in a metropolitan area. I um, I will share with you that I spend a lot of my time and I have a, um, a residence over in eastern Washington in Walla Walla. I call it the ABA. 
Um, but I also uh, keep a place and have an office in downtown Seattle. Very, very different environments. And what you're seeing with residences in the downtown core is very different than what it was pre-COVID. And it's very different from what we're seeing in, um, you know, over in Walla Walla, we refer to the west side as um, everything west of the Cascades and the east side is everything east of the Cascades. Whereas in Seattle, when we say the east side, we mean Bellevue, Redmond, Kirkland. And um, what we're seeing in our east side, um, Bellevue, is that the suburban markets for residential properties are doing well and multifamily properties are doing well. Houses and apartment condominiums in downtown markets and apartments, maybe not so good. Um, so to say that multifamily residential is doing great is misleading. In some areas, it's doing better and well. And in some areas, not so good. And all of the things that we saw pre-COVID got flipped upside down. So apartments in a core area were a no-brainer investment. And now you're seeing some major players in apartments wanting to move off of those properties. Or um, in major metropolitan areas, we're seeing developers wanting at considerable risk to take on an office property and convert it to a multifamily residential. Who would have figured that was going to happen? And how does a lender make underwriting decisions on a property that three or four years ago wasn't even thought of? Who would have thought of taking um, a hotel that was failing in Pierce County or Tacoma and turning it into a multifamily residential or better? You see these um, developers that specialize in um, uh, low-income housing trying to turn some of these properties that weren't originally built as multifamily into multifamily. And they're putting um, uh, HUD covenants for uh, uh, affordable housing on them. It's a whole yeah. different world. I like to think of that as a challenge, as something new and, and exciting. And just like the early 80s, just like the early 90s, just like 08, 07, 08, 09, the the standard is the dynamic. The only thing that's constant, as they used to tell us back in college, is change. And that's yeah. what we're seeing now. If you ask me to predict the future, the short answer is beats the heck out of me. But one thing I know for sure is if we have this conversation in a year or two, it ain't going to be like it is now. Yeah. No, agreed. Agreed. And that's so the, the one who figures it out is the one that will do well. I you know, I, I remember very soon after the 07, 08 uh, meltdown, I was at, um, pro it was probably 09, I was at one of the SEBA um, broker, um, for your listeners who don't know, SEBA's Commercial Brokers Association, and it was a breakfast meeting for the predictions. And we had a number of brokers predict, and lenders predict how the market was in the toilet and it wasn't going to get any better and wasn't this awful. And we can't do all the fun things we thought we could do in property development. And one guy stood up and um, I'll tell you in a minute who that was. And the one guy is a very successful, well-known developer in the area. And he said, y'all are a bunch of crybabies. You should have seen this coming. 
you should have kept your money and you should be sitting on your dry powder right now so you can come in and take advantage of these buying opportunities. And that person was Dave Sabe, and you can fill in the blanks with the rest. And I, and I think that strategy that you want to take your money and put it in your pocket when you can and save it when the market has those challenges is exactly what we're seeing now. And I don't think I was the only person who was paying attention because yeah. I'm seeing other people, no doubt the Derek Dokes of the world, who are okay. looking for the same kinds of opportunities. Yeah, well, I, it, the, the market and a lot of clients I work with have been the same individuals for years, right? And you see some of the prominent families in the area that you can just learn a lot from just studying what they've done. And that's what they do. When the market's turned and it's down is when you go in, you know, back in the early 70s, when that sign was down there by Boeing, it says the last person leaving, turn out the lights. Right. I, knew, I know one person really well who was buying up apartment buildings not too far from that sign. So um, it's it, it's cyclical, right? It's cyclical. And one thing we do know that for the most part, time saves you butt when you own real estate. So you just got to be able to hold on to it and buy it right and do the right. Well, the cost of capital is, is a relevant consideration. Oh. But, 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 both... but Rob, you got to remember, cost of capital in 2006 was six and a quarter. I was a just more, about to a, say it's a commercial loan was six and a quarter. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it, it's, 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 it, it, I remember my parents buying their house in 1978 and it was 18% when my dad got out of the military. Right. And so six and a quarter in 2006, we were still doing syndications, buying retail pads, doing our business model because it worked. It's right? all relative. And I think so, that's the perspective that we need we need to apply. We need to to have some balance. And I think the reason that we don't is because we've become complacent. We think um, two and three percent on ten-year uh, rates is normal. That right. that wasn't normal. No, <laughs> that no. was abnormal. No. Well, and yeah, now I, we're just seeing that same flux. So if you ask me, yes. what do you see? What's going to happen? The answer is it's going to change. Yes, and I was fortunate to work for uh, Touche Ross, uh, Deloitte and Touche back in the day, and I was in Japan in uh, 89, 2004, and interest rates were a point. And so we all had, know what happened when the Japanese bought Rockefeller Center. Yeah, I mean, and they were getting their money for a point, leveraging their downtown Tokyo property and buying real estate, you know? No, they weren't just buying Tokyo. The, the people no, who no, had no, that they're, money, they're that using, access to capital, were buying properties in major cities like right. Manhattan. Well, in Pebble Beach, what I was saying, what I meant by that was they were using their property as their leverage point in Tokyo for mm -hmm. their collateral to get the loans they'd go outside the country to go buy a bunch. And and I was a tax strategist. So I was doing a lot of 263 adjustments for developments to basically help them uh See, now the only not thing, to pay so much taxes. Yeah. The the only thing I would challenge you on is that um being a golf junkie, I think that buying Pebble Beach at any time at any price is probably a good deal. But I'm not a good person to ask for that. <laughs> well well that, that's when you if you buy it for yourself it's like, it's like well, no, I mean, own, with investors. I... No, 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 no. I mean, when you build it, when you build your own house, you do your own thing, right? You're not looking at it. That's why I'm a terrible, I'd be a terrible apartment owner because I'd want that apartment to look the way I want my house to look. And I would overpay, I'd overspend, and I'd never get it back on my rent. Um, and so to your point, if you bought something like Pebble Beach as a golf fanatic, you're buying that 
because that's just a trophy, right? It's not there because you're getting the return on your your capital. Exactly. It's a trophy. Well, no, the better investment is to pay outrageous greens fees and play whenever you can. <laughs> well, it's like having your friend with a boat. You know, I don't want to own a boat, but I'll buy I'll, I'll buy gas and uh, and beverages. Uh, that uh, don't want to buy a boat, but yeah, that's, I think, I think one of the things you and I talked about this, you know, being a part of the CCIM chapter and we get a lot of people to come up we talk to a lot of panels that we're on. Um, it's, it's the, the, the individuals that haven't gone through something like this. Uh, and, and if unfortunately you do get in a financial pickle during this situation, you got to learn from it and know it's going to happen again down the road and be prepared for it to where, you're not in a position to where you're going up and down. You got to have a consistent business model. You got to have a consistent criteria if you're an investor and you got to kind of go with it. The rules of the game will change just like any sporting event. We all played sports. You always had a referee or an umpire that, you know, when you'd pitch, they wouldn't call that corner, but the umpire after them called that corner, right? So you adjust your game to fit the rules of the engagement that you're involved with. And that's kind of where we're at. We're kind of looking at the rules of the engagement have changed of certain things money's a little different so you got to get a little creative on your money but at the end of the day you still have a fiduciary responsibility to everybody you're engaged with and um i think that's that's my takeaway from it is just staying the course making sure that you're getting good properties good assets and taking care of the people that are taking care of you good advice spoken like a true accounting background person <laughs> um i I would offer a corollary to that theory, and that is um, don't panic. Yeah. I've watched different people of varying degrees of expertise go through all sorts of challenges. And the people who are able to keep their cool, make good business decisions, and not panic at the first sign of turbulence are are better off if you've if, if you've ever been through um, a, a near miss or a crash landing in an airplane, and I have, you know that there are certain times when the last thing in the world that you want to do is panic. And um, pilots are really good at this. They may be going down with the plane, but they're trying to keep it from going down and they're not panicking. And they're trying to make smart decisions. And I think that that's the advice for your listeners be smart, don't panic, and, and realize that there are always options, even if you think there aren't. And I've learned that the there are no stupid questions when you're talking about options, except perhaps those questions that you don't answer, ask for whatever reason. Yeah. And, and, and make sure you read the documents and have a good attorney look at them. I mean, one thing, just when the market's hot and everything's flowing, that's, it's easy to sign on a dotted line on something that's going to get be a simple deal. So, mm -hmm. you know, you never know what you're signing until it goes sideways. And well, so I'm, I'm biased. Or documents or... I'm, I'm biased, but um, I think my clients will tell you is that having an able, thoughtful, um, experienced attorney is a sine qua non for surviving any difficult period. Agreed. Agreed. See, attorneys are people too. I wouldn't go that far, <laughs> but but I but I know a few that are. Really nice. 
Uh, well, Rob, I appreciate your time as always. And, uh, and, and again, thanks for, uh, you know, saying that you'd jump on here and do this with me. Um, oh, you're I welcome. I should also say, um, I know a few, what I call recovering attorneys, they'll always have the disease, but they take it one day at a time, who turned out to be very successful investors. So there is hope for the attorneys as well. Someday they'll learn not to do the work of others, but, but to do their own. And for those of us like me, who enjoy having fun and successful clients. Being the thoughtful decision maker with a good lawyer is always a better situation. Yeah, yeah. nope, agreed. You're not gonna get any uh, counter argument from me on that one, that is for sure. But, always a pleasure to vi visit with you, Derek. Well, thanks again, Rob. And anybody out there who has any questions for Rob or myself, you can always reach me at uh, Derek at dokemail.com or just send me a note through LinkedIn or wherever else you get access to me. Uh, or at the office at NEI Puget Sound Properties. If you got something for Rob, I'll definitely get it over to Rob. Um, and uh, and again, you know, I think Rob's one of the the greats that are out there. And I, I appreciate every time we get together and the conversations we have, whether it's here at CCIM chapter or just offline. So again, thanks again. And everybody have a great day. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you should have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to me directly at Derek at DokeMail.com. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day. Thank you.